So let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you've been with us, you know last week we looked at chapter 5, verses 16 to 19, and the miracle of salvation. The text calls it the ministry of reconciliation, talking about the reconciliation between God and man. The thought that our relationship with God could be restored. I mean, these are super spiritual things. Because of what God did through His Son on the cross and in the resurrection, we have new life. We have a new relationship with God. And as we saw last week, that changes everything. Last week we looked at eight new truths, eight new realities for believers And those all boil down to two application points for us in particular. Number one, we just don't look at people the same way anymore. We see them spiritually and we see them eternally. Because it's not the physical and the temporal that counts. There's something far greater. And we learn to see people that way. And secondly, because we see their spiritual reality, we are compelled to tell them about Jesus Christ. There is an unction in us. There is a compelling, there is a drive. There is a spiritual instinct that says they have to know. Not only have we been reconciled with God through His Son, through faith in His Son, but God then chooses to involve us in the reconciliation process with others. He gives us all, He gives all Christians what verse 18 calls the ministry of reconciliation. Both the message and the ministry of it have been committed to us by God. And sharing the good news of life in Christ is our great commission. We know this. And in the verses that we're going to look at today, starting in verse 20 of chapter 5, Paul is going to dive into the particulars, some of the particulars of our ministry of reconciliation. So let's read chapter 5, verse 20, through chapter 6, verse 10. This is what the ministry of reconciliation looks and sounds like. Chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In chapter 6, And working together with Him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold, we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. God bless the reading and the study of His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are amazing words we've read. And Lord, we long to understand them in a deeper, life-changing way. We humbly know that You have saved us but you've also entrusted us with the message and the ministry of it. So Lord, guide our thoughts today. Help us to know how to to rightly love and serve you and to share the gospel with others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We see in these verses that Scripture has laid out a detailed picture 
of what the ministry of reconciliation looks and sounds like. We're going to focus on several characteristics this morning. Perhaps you'll spot a few more in the text. If you do, send me an email. Give me a buzz. I'd love to hear what you're finding as well. Like many of you, the more I study the Bible, the more I appreciate the way Scripture teaches and explains itself. In regard to the ministry of reconciliation that was introduced last week, we all know that we're supposed to share the gospel. That's what Christian life is all about. That is our great commission. We know this. We are to go and make disciples. But in order for that to become a daily reality, in order for that to become a genuine lifestyle, we need to put some teeth to these big Christian concepts and phrases. Phrases like share the gospel, make disciples, the ministry of reconciliation, etc. It's the teeth that make the difference. It's the details that help us to know what steps of action to take and how to take them. It helps us to know how to evaluate our progress. In the verses we just read, there are no less than seven measuring sticks. Seven truth applications for us to apply. So let's begin. Observation truth number one of the ministry of reconciliation is that we are ambassadors. We see this clearly in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And right out the gate, we recognize without question that if we are doing the ministry of reconciliation, if we are truly sharing Christ with others, introducing them to the one who saved and changed our life, we will look like ambassadors, ambassadors for Christ. It's one thing to say, I'm a Christian. It's another to say, I am an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Not that it should be different. It's unfortunate that the term Christian has grown to have so little meaning in our society. I was briefly chatting online this week with one of the fellows in the church about Christian terms and how their definition often changes from generation to generation. Ambassador is one of the definitions we need to bring back into the term Christian. Regardless of whether the world recognizes it, the church needs to recognize it. Here's the first definition I found in the online dictionary for ambassador. A diplomatic official of the highest rank sent by one sovereign or state to another as its resident representative. Wow, no wonder Paul used that term. Children of God, sent by the God of heaven as resident representatives on the earth. That's what Christians are. Paul further illuminates the role of ambassador in the ministry of reconciliation in the rest of the verse. He says, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Point number two, God is with us. This is so important to recognize because here's the reality. It's not my message, it's God's. We simply speak on His behalf, on behalf of Christ. And unlike human ambassadors from one country to, to another, we actually have God speaking through us. It is the Holy Spirit that somehow supernaturally and spiritually gives us the words to say. This is a miracle that happens in Christian ambassadorship. Chapter 6, verse 1 points out that we work together with God. Have you ever been faced with the opportunity to, to talk with someone about God? About what you believe? About what the Bible says? And felt like maybe it was just you and them? Maybe even, depending on the situation, you against them, just you? The reality is that we don't minister alone. God ministers with us. He ministers through us. And this spiritual reality, this spiritual miracle is empowering to us when we share our faith. It helps relieve our fears. It builds up our confidence. It makes us more resilient to opposition. And the list goes on. Point number three. We don't just tell people about Christ. We beg them 
to believe. We find this in the verse we just read. There's a big difference between telling someone about Christ and begging them to believe. Would you agree? There's a world of difference between these two. Some of your Bibles say, we implore you or we pray you to be reconciled to God. Of the several points that we're going to look at, this one was probably most helpful to me, most challenging and encouraging to me. We learn here that the gospel is not just an announcement. It's an invitation, and it's an urgent invitation. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write that out. The gospel is not just information. It's not just an announcement. It is an urgent invitation. We call for a response. We do everything, as Paul said, to persuade men to believe. When Paul begs others to be reconciled to God, we learn that the gospel message demands a sense of urgency. It carries incredible ramifications. I'm sure we'd all agree that one of the the common faults of American Christianity is the lack of urgency in sharing Christ with those who stand right around us. With our minds, we know that eternity could strike sometime today. But with our actions, we give the impression that we've all still got time and lots of it. Of course, the older we get, the more we lose that false sense of time security. But why wait until we're looking death in the face? either for ourselves or with others, to get serious, to get urgent with the word of reconciliation that God has committed to us. Our evangelism is to be marked by urgency and not just information. That is surely a big part of what drives John Westermark to go to the Tacoma Rescue Mission every Friday night. Every Friday he possibly can. He's urgent. It's real. There is everything to be gained or everything to be lost, depending on how you look at it. This is part of our calling. The Apostle Paul learned to see life differently as we studied last Sunday. And that new vision, that spiritual eternal vision, instinctively created a sense of urgency in him. It's one of the ways we know we have the vision. Paul genuinely saw the gospel as a matter worth pleading over. Does that describe the way you and I share Christ with others? That's part of our calling. Now, of course, there's an appropriate time and place and way to to actually verbalize this urgency. We don't go around shoving the Bible in people's faces. That's not what Paul did, and that's not what he's telling us to do. As we saw back in chapter 1 and 2 especially, Paul was investing himself in lifelong relationships that earned him the right to speak so personally and so spiritually into the lives of others. But back to us. Is it possible that we have been so careful not to offend others that we've swung the pendulum too far the other direction. We're almost afraid to even ask the question, let alone speak it with deep conviction and genuine concern. And I'll be honest with you, my human tendency is to present the gospel and to talk about the things of God with almost an attitude of, hey, I know this might not be right for you. I totally understand if you're not interested, but do you know what Jesus has done for you? Is it possible the pendulum has swung apologetically and timidly far from the center truth of reality, spiritual reality, eternal reality? If so, we're not being very good ambassadors for Christ. Thank God He has given us examples and truths like these and His own Spirit to help us know the right way to share Christ. Point number four, our message is about what Christ has done for us. Now we know this, and Paul knows we know this, but it's worth repeating, and that's why he repeats it. 
key to bold evangelism is an unshakable awareness of what Christ has done for us. Verse 21 says, He, that's God, made Him, that's Jesus the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That verse is a magnificent summary of the gospel. I could never in my lifetime think of a one-sentence better summary of what God has done through Christ. In one sense, this is the message of reconciliation. Just referenced in verse 19. God has committed to us the word of reconciliation, and this is that word. God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. There are several spiritual truths here that guide and strengthen our faith. Truths that give us reason to trust in Jesus. Don't ever let someone tell you that Christianity is a blind faith. When we not only read, but study, and hunger and thirst for the righteousness in the Word, God opens the pages of Scripture, and we find ample evidence and reason to put faith, all of our faith, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's one of the Mount Everest reasons. Jesus was, and is, and always will be sinless, righteous, perfectly holy. And this verse in particular prompts us to dive into this key theological truth. Jesus was and is and always will be sinless. That's why His righteousness, which was granted us, was so effective on our behalf. Now, especially for the two to four-year-olds here today, I'm going to dive just a little deeper, deeper into the theological side of this verse. It is critical that you and I understand that Jesus did not become a sinner at the cross. He did not become a sinner in His death. He never became evil. He never took on the nature of sin. Let me say it again. Jesus did not become a sinner at the cross or in His death. He did not take on the nature of evil. He did not become evil or sin. As some false teachers have heretically claimed, using the unique wording in this single verse, especially in more recent years in the Word of Faith movement, not only is there no scripture to support that Jesus is or was sin or became the nature of Satan, these are things being taught. Not only is there no scripture to support such an abhorrent interpretation of this verse, it doesn't even make common spiritual sense. Here's why. Sinners can't die for sinners. Had Christ become sin or become a sinner, he immediately would have ceased to be the spotless Lamb of God. And his death would only be applicable for himself. When a sinner dies, they pay the penalty for their own sin. I can't die for your sins even if I wanted to as a pastor. You can't die for my sins. We can't die for our children's, etc. Jesus was and remained sinless at the cross. Hebrews chapter 7, 26 says this of Jesus. For it was fitting. That means it was just the right fit. It fit perfectly. It was most appropriate. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So in this verse today, what does the phrase to be sin on our behalf mean? First off, there's a very important principle to apply here. We've mentioned this before. You know this. If we have one verse that is unclear and we have 99 that are explicitly clear, we form our doctrine around the 99. In time, as we mature in our understanding of biblical interpretation, we will find that one verse never contradicts all the others. It's like this. You and I could easily pull a statement from our spouse's mouth at some point in the day and say, this is exactly what those words mean. And we'd be right. Standing alone, that's exactly what that sentence 
could very well mean. But in context, and especially in the broader context of a time-proven relationship with our spouse, we know that that is never what they would have meant. That is never what they were trying to communicate. That is not who they are. We take the 99 and we use them to govern our interpretation of the one rare instance that could be misunderstood. Speaking of context in the verse here, we read the phrase to be sin in context of the words immediately preceding it. There is an understanding all throughout Scripture that helps to, us to recognize the doctrinal strength in the phrase, he who knew no sin. We're looking at the righteousness of Christ there, of course. If at any point Christ ceased to be righteous, the entire gospel would implode. Graham didn't tell me to say that here, and I didn't tell him to say that in the Sunday school class. The entire gospel would implode. It would lose all of its value, its spiritual eternal value, and you and I would lose the entire new covenant. So let's go to some of the 99 to see what's being communicated in this very brief one-verse summary of the gospel. Never use summaries to define detail, right? We always use detail to define summaries. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's see what that means in just a few other verses. 1 Peter chapter 2. We find this in verse 21 to 25. It helps give us the bigger picture of what Christ did for us and what happened to him on the cross. It says, For you, speaking of believers, have been called for this purpose. Speaking of the suffering of Christ and, and the suffering for the spread of the gospel. He says, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return, while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, and he himself bore our sins. Notice, not his sins. He never sinned. He was not a sinner. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. There's the substitution. There's the swap of our sins for his righteousness. He took our place as though he were the one who committed our sins, even though he wasn't. The verse goes on to say, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. I can't wait to get to heaven to see exactly what that supernatural truth looks like and means. The fullness of what took place in the cross and the resurrection for us and in us. It goes on to say, For by His wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Those are most amazing words. Paul is definitely echoing Isaiah 53 there. Let's look at Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. It says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Galatians 3.13 uses similar wording to our text here today. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. There's that unique wording again. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There is a wide biblical contextual understanding that there is a sense in which the curse simply became personal. The sin became personal. Not in that Christ committed it, but that he accepted the verdict for it, the judgment, the penalty for us. And back to 2 Corinthians 5. This verse 21, this is one of those texts where we don't, don't want to get all lost in the weeds, right? The point is, Christ paid the penalty for our sin, and he gave us his righteousness instead. The greatest swap known to mankind. We call this his substitution, the substitutionary atonement. 
we were made righteous so that we could go to heaven and live with God forever. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Christ died for sinners. He died for you and me. He took our place in death. He took our place in judgment. And he not only took our place though, He not only bore our sins, He not only took our penalty, He conquered the curse. Have you ever noticed that Christ doesn't have to remain in the grave or in death for eternity on our behalf? That's because Jesus Christ was more than a substitute. He was a conqueror. Let's look at the last four points of what our ministry of reconciliation is supposed to look and sound like. Chapter 6, verse 1. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Point number five. Our message is time-sensitive. This is one of the main reasons why it's so urgent. Paul says, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, whether that means receive the gospel message and reject it, or whether it means to genuinely get saved and then fail to fulfill our ministry of reconciliation, this much is certain. It is possible to receive the grace of God in vain, to waste it, to make no effect of it. And regardless of which reality Paul is referring to here, this truth applies to both of them. Perhaps he's referring to both. Both sides would do well to heed this warning, to heed this call. Paul is quoting here the prophecy of the Messiah's coming in Isaiah 49. And he says, that prophecy just happened. The time is now. Messiah has come. Eternal life is here. This is the day. And of course, what's so incredible is that this is just as real and timely for you and me as it was for them. We live in the age of salvation. This is the day. This is the era of reconciliation with God through faith in Christ. And to delay in both receiving the gospel and in sharing the gospel is to receive the grace of God in vain. Vain means worthless, of no positive value or effect. And Paul says, don't fail to receive the grace of God like that, in that manner. If Paul were to come preach to us today, surely he would be preaching this same message. Don't waste the opportunity. So Claire Jewell pressed us on with the four wonderful devotions he gave us at family camp a month or so ago. It's the heart cry I hear from so many of you, even throughout the week. I love that. Today is the day to share. Today is the day to receive and believe. The message is time-sensitive because at some point, the sun will set on the opportunity. The day will end, and none of us knows when that is. Therefore, our message is urgently time-sensitive. Verse 3, Paul drops another major definition of what the ministry of reconciliation looks like. Verse 3, giving no no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. Point number six, we must not offend in how we share Christ, in how we live out Christianity, in how we do the work of the ministry and the life of the church. Now, you'd think this would be a no-brainer. But we are all, even as saved sinners, still so prone to pride and selfishness. Opportunity abounds to share Christ offensively. To seek sanctification offensively. And of course, Paul is talking about sinful offense. 
Yes, absolutely. Christ and the gospel are a rock of offense, but that is a righteous offense. For five chapters, Paul's been pointing out various offensive, sinful ways that false teachers are doing the work of the ministry in the city of Corinth, such as peddling the word of God, getting rich off it, getting famous off of it. He just pointed out in chapter 5, there were those who were taking pride in appearance rather than in the heart. They weren't genuine. And here he instructs the church as a whole, don't be offensive because it discredits the ministry. Don't put a bad name on a good message. Don't give the good ministry a bad rap. How sad if the title of this sermon in our life was Discrediting Ambassadors or Embarrassing Ambassadors. And we can't help but notice the word anything. That's a, that's a painfully inclusive word. Don't let anything you do in your public life, in your private life, in ministry, in the workplace, on vacation, don't let anything offend and bring shame to Christ and the ministry of reconciliation. Discredit. Don't give people an excuse not to believe. I love how Scripture doesn't just point out the negative, though. Paul just doesn't tell us what we're not supposed to do. He tells us what to do. Here is a great antidote to shameful behavior. Verse 4, But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. Our final point, number seven, we must serve. I think we all know that a servant mindset does wonders for Christian living. I mean, you could take even far that. Even the non-Christian, if they have a servant mindset, that's a wonderful thing in the community. That's a wonderful thing in their homes, etc. A servant mindset is it's like the apple a day that keeps the doctor away. Humbly working for the benefit of others and the glory of Christ goes a long way in protecting the believer from offending others and discrediting the work of the ministry. Self-centeredness and a sense of entitlement, which we're all so prone to. In the church, in the home, in the marriage, you name it, that sense of entitlement and right to be served, that pride is a key that unleashes no end to offense and shame to the name of Christ. But show me a true servant, and I'll show you a good ambassador. The opposite of discrediting is being commended as a servant, a servant of God. The dictionary helps us to understand that to commend someone or something means to present it, to introduce it, to deliver it with confidence. An example of this usage is found in Ryrie's book, Practical Religion. I mean, the odds that I would just find this on dictionary.com, here's one of the usages. He said, I commend then to your attention the importance of reverence and humility in prayer. I present it. I put it forward. I bring it to your attention. Paul says, we commend ourselves as servants of God. There is so much power and instruction in that phrase alone. One lesson that strikes us is the responsibility of the individual to present him or herself as a servant of God. This isn't something we wait for others to delegate to us. We saw this a week or two ago. Seminaries don't make us servants. Churches don't delegate this duty. This calling is straight from God upon all of us. And the response is a personal one. It's a personal step up to the plate. It's a personal act of engagement. And Paul says, in everything, here's another one of those painful words, in everything, not just on Sunday, all week, not just in the church, everywhere, not just when it's convenient, but in everything, we commend ourselves, that is, we put ourselves forward, we present ourselves as servants of God. And as the dictionary pointed out, there's a sense of confidence in the commending. This is a thoughtful and purposefully made decision or presentation. We step forward confidently, assuredly, with conviction to serve. 
one of the highest aspirations we can have is to be a servant of God. Is it any wonder that so many key figures in the Bible and authors of the Scripture, especially in the New Testament, introduce themselves as what? Servants of God. Servants of the Most High. From Job to David to Isaiah to Paul and John and Peter, they all identified themselves as servants. And then we have our chief example, Jesus Christ. I mean, doesn't this one just blow you away every time you stop to ponder it? What scripture comes to mind? Perhaps Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. If it was good for Jesus, surely it's good for you and me. One of the best compliments and highest honors we can receive is that of being a servant of God. Jesus said in Mark 9, 35, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. If our gravestone said, a servant of God, wouldn't that be enough? What do we pray we'll hear upon entry into heaven? Well done, good and faithful servant. By practical definition, a servant is a person who performs the will of their master. Let's not overcomplicate this. Good ambassadors are serving God and getting it done. They're out there in the trenches. They've got a shovel in hand. They're putting in the hours. We are called to be hard workers for God. And good hard workers put in the time, they put in the labor, they follow the plans, they work together, and in the big picture, they, give both the they both give the organization a good name, and they mark themselves as hard workers, in this case, servants of God, in the kingdom of God. They're getting it done. It's that simple. The reality is that there are people getting the job done, and there are people who do a lot of talking about how the job should be done. Yeah. I'm sure we've all been in both places. In the simplest of terms, servants are those who are serving. You don't even need a degree in linguistics to figure that one out. Servants are those who are serving. Good servants are the people who are serving good. Pardon the grammar. But let's bring this close to home for our own church family. Right now, I'm sure, as I mentioned earlier, John Westermark, he'd love to have people join him on his visits to the Tacoma Rescue Mission. I'm sure there's always an open seat. They'll make one if there isn't. Our church could use a webmaster so I can stop making such a mess of these sites myself. We need someone to take the leadership for our fantastic family camp ministry. There's opportunities to serve in the nursery, serve as teachers. I have good reason to believe that if someone steps forward to lead a women's Bible study in the evenings, even if just once or twice a month, it'll take off. Same thing for the men. For all those guys who are too lazy to be here at 6.30 in the morning on Wednesdays. You know, I'm just kidding there. Kind of. The schedules are a reality. You know what a joy it is to see so many people step forward with a meal for someone who's ill or just gave birth. I love our prayer chain and the phone calls of encouragement that I know go out often throughout the week. Whether it's a trip to the mission or whether it's a meal for someone in need, it should all be a passionate and urgent part of serving God and passing on His appeal for reconciliation. We serve the gospel to people and we celebrate the gospel in our service. We credit the gospel when we serve. The more I observe and learn about being a Christian, and living a joyful, inspired, connected, and fruitful Christian life, the more I observe of this, the more I see that service is an absolutely irreplaceable ingredient. Serving is really, really, really good for our spiritual health. We all know that being active is part of having a healthy heart, both physically and spiritually. Oftentimes, when we're not doing well spiritually, we find ourselves wondering things like, Maybe I need to be reading the Bible more. Maybe I need to pray more. 
Maybe I need to go to church more. Those may be the case. But we should also evaluate our spiritual exercise. Serving promotes good health. And across the board, some of the healthiest Christians I know are the active ones. If you're a gardener, you know what Ruth means when she says there is something invigorating about putting your hands in the soil. If you're in construction, you understand that, that feeling that comes when you see the first wall go up and the roof go on and the final coat of paint being applied. Of course, around here, my goodness, we'd be thrilled just to get a permit. But you get the point. A huge part of Christian health is Christian service, both in and out of the church. Loving, humble, faithful Christian service. That is one of the strongest medications for self-centeredness, loneliness, and depression. And it's one of the best protein supplements for spiritual bodybuilding. Whatever you do, don't believe the lie that says we're all best off leaving the work of the church to the paid professionals. Nobody else is qualified. Where in the scripture do we see that kind of crazy thinking? If for no other reason, we should serve for our own health's sake. But how much greater to serve for the rescue of people's souls and for the glory of God, the strengthening of our own church family, the strengthening of others. Now, you and I can engage in the ministry of reconciliation in our private lives in an, in, in a, in an indirect way that has nothing to do with the church, directly to do with the church. And that's good important and important. But the reality is that most of the ministry happens as we work together for the sake of the gospel. That is God's design for the local church. Real quick, Mark preached on service a few months back. We put together a list of current service opportunities. If you're looking for ways to serve in a church right here in your own church family, take a fresh look at that form. It's in your bulletins today. This is, there's a very sincere part of me that longs for every person to serve, not just for the sake of the ministry, but for the joy and good health that comes from serving. God is so good in the way He designed the church to need and serve one another. There are blessings for all parties involved. I have to think that so often in life, we are searching for blessings and peace and joy in places that it's not to be truly found. Service is one of the wellsprings of joy and encouragement in our own faith. And whether we serve from home or on site or out in the community, the key is to be serving as best we can wherever we can. What a joy to recently get a half dozen or so church membership applications and to see all the areas of service checked off on the back of these forms where people are willing and eager to engage. And member or not, we know that we are all members of the body of Christ, fully. When I look at the amount of serving that is happening in our church family, I want you to know it humbles me. It brings so much joy to my heart and to the hearts of those around us. Everybody wants to be a part of a serving, happy church family. But those church families consist of individuals who are doing just that. And I rejoice at what God is doing here in our own church family. Another quick tool for the church family here, in addition to the paper handouts, you also have an online volunteer form on your community profile. I don't know if you know this or not. We just recently built this and added it to the community. That's our church family's private website. You can sign into your account, and under my profile, in the main menu, you'll find Edit My Volunteer Interests. I'm sure you can figure it out. You just check off the boxes. Don't forget to hit the update button at the bottom of the page. So why have I spent at least a good 10 minutes talking about service this morning? Well, for one thing, it's in the text. And it's a big part of what Paul has been communicating through all of the prior five chapters. He wants the people of Corinth, he wants all believers, the Holy Spirit longs for all believers to thrive and the lifestyle of Christian service is key to that. Now, secondly, I want you to know that I am not talking about service because we're desperate for help in this church. One of the humbling realities in ministry, and hear me on this, is that God does not need me. 
God wants me. God invites me because God loves me. The truth is, He's got all the power of heaven at His disposal. He does not need any of our puny strength to get things done. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, as the Scripture says. He doesn't need my money. He doesn't need your money. He has everything He needs at His disposal. But He loves to involve you and me in the awesome things He is doing. He loves speaking through us. He loves working through us. Speaking of the speaking, we know that if He wanted to, He could use the rocks to do that job. And He will if He has to. But He chooses you and me. He loves working through us. He loves multiplying the fruit of our giving and service. Here's the point blank, honest reality. If you and I don't serve God, He will provide someone else. If I give up on God and I walk out of this pulpit and leave this church family all of a sudden someday, guess what? The ministry of reconciliation will go on. That's the confidence we have in Christ and in His Word. The power is all about Him. Nothing will stop God's will and God's ministry and God's message. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against it, right? We participate and we serve for the sheer joy and privilege of being a part, a small part of what God alone is doing for His kingdom and glory. Why not march with the winning army? The battle has already been won. Let's wrap up quickly with verses 4 to 10. If you serve God, you are agreeing to the following terms and conditions which can include but are not limited to the following associated risks. Verse 4 continues, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold, we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Welcome to ministry. That's a snapshot of Paul's life of Christian service. Now, of course, it's very unlikely that all of that is going to happen to us. But we know certainly that some of that will apply and does apply. We are all called to endurance. We're all called to serve in the word of truth and according to the power of God and in honesty and patience and in kindness and in the Holy Spirit, etc., when we think of our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church, yes, we realize that some are called to imprisonments and beatings and are regarded as deceivers and yet true. We have to appreciate the spiritual eternal reality that Paul acknowledges and he celebrates and he clings to as he gets deeper into this list. All these hardships, and yet we live. We're always rejoicing. We're making many rich. We possess all things. All the blessings in the storehouses of God are availed to us. We are so privileged in God. There's a distinct sense here in which Paul is saying, it's not what it looks like. God is winning the day. Grace is real. How is it that God's winning? Why? Because we're in Christ. His righteousness is in us. It's God's ministry. It's God's message. God prepares. God purposes. God pledges, as we saw a few weeks ago. We are just along for the ride of grace. And it's a wonderful ride. We're here to serve the one who lived and died and rose again and now reigns on high 
for us and for his own glory. Back to the day-to-day reality. Regardless of how we serve, whether it's cleaning the church toilets or giving to the building fund or praying for those who are sick, etc., our heart prayer in service should be, God, help others to hear your appeal. Our labor of love, whether it's in word or in deed, is just one way, more way for us to beg others on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to the God who made them and loves them. That is the heart cry of those who are looking not at what can be seen, but who are diligently looking through the Word and through the Spirit at what we cannot see, the spiritual and the eternal realities of life. Everything we should do, we do, should be pointed ultimately at getting the gospel out, getting the message of grace and mercy and judgment, as we studied just a week or two ago. And as today's text teaches, we need to be getting it out urgently and innocently and diligently. We are so privileged to be a part of this new mercy mission from above. By the grace of God, let us go and grow and be the ambassadors He has called us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are an awesome God, and Your Word is truth. It is awesome. Thank You, Lord, that You not only save us, but You walk with us, You guide us, You protect us, You provide for us. All of the blessings we need are ours. Thank you, Lord. Lord, use your word to help us again afresh more than before to see life like you want us to see it. To focus not on the physical and the temporal, but Lord, to focus our vision through the word and spirit of God on the things that are eternal, the things that are spiritual. And as we see those realities, Lord, light a fire of urgency in our hearts. Help us to tap into the power that Paul so experienced that he could say, I boast in my weakness because in my weakness, the power of quiet Christ dwells on me. Lord, let us be individuals and let us be a church where the power of Christ dwells. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel. It is your power. It's saving power. It's sanctifying power. It's the power of perfect hope. Lord, as we embrace that tighter for ourselves, may we run to share it with others, we pray. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.